We are getting loads of questions from you about how to retire early and is not just from older doctors. Perhaps this reflects just how difficult working in the NHS is right now. Financial independence, retire early or fire is something that we've talked about on the podcast in episode seven and also extensively on our blog. And you may know that I'm a big fan of trying to reach financial independence or FI. But one thing I don't see discussed that much in the FIRE community is how the NHS pension can help you to retire early. So on today's podcast, we discuss everything from when can you retire from the NHS? How can you top up your NHS pension, including a discussion about using ERBOs? We also talk about private pensions and ISAs. And we also talk about my own early retirement strategy, which is pretty simple, really. As ever, this podcast is for information only and does not represent any form of financial advice. The value of your investments can rise and fall and you may get back less than you invested. If you like this podcast, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe as we continue on our mission to empower doctors to make better financial decisions. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome back to the Medics Money podcast, Mr. Tom Skinner from Barnaby Cecil. How are you doing, Tom? All good, thank you. Yeah, all well this end. Thanks. So thanks so much for coming back. Your last episode was really, really popular where we looked at some common mistakes that can happen in pension records and how doctors can correct them. And so I definitely recommend you checking that out. But do you want to just start by uh, giving yourself the intro and tell us why you're qualified to talk about today's subject? Uh, in terms of advising doctors, um, I began working in 2003 as a doctor working for a firm that specialised in doctors, and I've always sort of carried that out throughout my career. So 17 years talking to uh, NHS consultants about their finances, NHS pensions, and everything uh, in and around that. So yeah, I don't know, thousands of consultations and hours listening to doctors talk about their money. Yeah, uh, you don't look to have enough grey hairs uh, for someone who spent so much time uh, advising doctors because maybe we're not the always the easiest to advise with, uh, for various reasons. So that's really good. And I mentioned that you came on our podcast before, but you also got your own podcast as well. Do you want to give that a shout out? Because um, it's really, really good. We have indeed, yeah. The, the Barnaby Cecil uh, NHS Pensions podcast. So Although yours focuses on on everything to do with uh, uh, medics finances, we really sort of drill down in on the on the pension and find that there's enough there to to keep us busy. And we've got two or three really interesting podcasts come up, and I think we've recorded about nine or, or ten so far. Um, and we are always interested in talking to anybody who's had um, any personal experiences. So I got my brother, who's a paramedic, to come on and talk about his um, his experiences and, and how his finances were interacting with uh, the NHS pension and I think that really brings it alive when somebody talks about their own personal circumstances uh, more so than you know us drilling down on legislation and, and various things that uh, have featured in the press it uh, brings it to life much more when somebody can relate to a, a fellow peer in a, in a different profession. Yeah, uh, I love that episode with your brother as well um, because as I say he's a paramedic and uh, my overriding 
sort of take home from that was that he was quite surprised at the, the benefits that the pension had given him, basically. And uh, he did a, quite a nice comparison, I think, between your non-NHS and his NHS. So that was really cool. So I'll drop the link for that below. Definitely give that a listen. But today, I mean, we at Medics Money are getting always getting questions about FIRE, so financial independence, retire early, and we've done loads of podcasts on that before. Um, and, and we were just talking before we came on as well that you are getting loads of inquiries from doctors about retiring early, um, which is a shame in some ways uh, for the NHS, uh, but probably reflects the current reality. So I thought it'd be really useful to talk about how the NHS pension interacts with a desire to retire early because I think the NHS pension is an amazing fire tool um, and I'm all in on fire and I'm all in on the NHS pension, uh, but it's not my only retirement strategy. So it'd be really interesting to talk about that. But do you want to just say a bit about what you've noticed recently uh, about people retiring or leaving? Yeah, I think so two aspects to that. One is the sort of senior um, uh, consultants and GPs within the profession are looking at ways to yeah change their change their work life balance and either retire and return uh, on a different contract or a different format or looking to retire and do something completely different. I think a lot of the a lot of the surveys that run that are run by the BMA um, are there to create uh, an angle within the within the press sometimes. And the reality, in my experience, when I talk to doctors on a day-to-day basis, is that they there are there are a range of reasons they're looking to retire early. It's not because of any annual allowance or lifetime allowance um, taxation. That there are other reasons, um, such as yeah, just wanting to get a, a bit more out of um, out of their out of their working week. Um, and obviously, the pandemic has put a lot of people under a tremendous amount of pressure, and they're sort of perhaps viewing it from that that prison. Yeah, it's definitely multifactorial. Um, I don't want to retire early yet, but I'm pretty young, to be honest. Uh, But I do not work full time in the NHS. And for me, that has meant that my career is more sustainable. The demands of working in the modern NHS full time are are really tough. So um, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. So you know, a lot of things. Times we get questions basically saying, "I'm a I'm a 35, 40 year old doctor, and I want to fire. So should I just leave the NHS pension?" Um, so should we talk a bit about? And I think the reason people think about leaving is because they think that they can't get the pension until they retire, or some other misconception. So should we just start talking a bit about the normal retirement age and the minimum retirement age in the legacy and the 2015 schemes? Um, and how that might be relevant, because I think it's important that people realise when they can take their benefits in the various schemes. Yeah, so just on that point, in terms of um, yeah, people retiring early, we're getting a lot of lots of um, of inquiries, certainly more than we ever did, of people who are looking at uh, the difference between working in the NHS and working in the private sector. So this is either going, going you know, validating and then doing a lot more private work. Um, or going into pharma um, uh, and, and asking us to calculate what their benefit package needs to be to create parity within the NHS um, or, or parity to the NHS pension, which can be done and is and is a complex sort of calculation. But what that's done for us is is help us to understand then how to shape those two different retirement strategies to to, to meet somewhere in the middle. 
And essentially, you're dealing with a greater requirement for capital in the private sector versus less capital um, and more guaranteed income, um, but within that, some constraints. So you get all the benefits of a, of a guaranteed income, um, but it isn't as flexible as you know, creating um, a variable capital amount that gives you then more flexibility as to when you turn that income on and off um, and, uh, and, and can combine it with, um, you know, with private income or income from a range of sources. I love that. Um, I think that's a really important point that what you're saying basically is that NHS is a guaranteed index linked, so inflation proof income for life, right? And that sounds really nice and is really nice. But the downside is that it does have some restrictions, which we'll get into talking about. Um, and then versus uh, a private sort of scheme, which is, you know, essentially, you're going to need to pay more for the same benefits. And correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth here, but you're going to need to pay more for the same benefits, but you might it might be a bit more flexible. Is that a fair? Have I got that right? Yeah, you're going you're to have to put more money um, the into uh, into somewhere where you're creating yeah, a, a pot of capital, which um, is going to have a variable amount. It, the amount that it increases each year is going to vary. It is going to require some oversight, skill, and due diligence um, to select a range of funds and investments within that portfolio. Um, and so there is uh, less certainty, and the risk of that scheme is then sits on the shoulders of the of the scheme member because it's their it's their retirement scheme, their own individual retirement fund, versus the um, all those decisions uh, taken away run by the actuaries who manage the NHS pension scheme. But additionally, and, and, and not everybody who comes and asks us to perform those calculations then decides to go and work in the private sector. They just want to, to shape the, the two. But listening to those that have then gone and worked in the private sector, um, you know, it, it really is sort of chalk and cheese in terms of comparing the, the work environment. So there's, there's more things to consider than just the pension. If you work in the NHS and if you work um, uh, for, a, you know, you go to a hospital, very rarely do you see somebody once they reach the consultant stage change hospitals. So you get somebody who's worked, you know, 26 years at the same hospital and therefore, you know, there, there is an element of structure to that so to that working week, which means you just you turn up for work and you get on with the job, and there's many things, there's lots of things in within that job that are difficult and dynamic and um, challenging, but the framework within that job changes. Whereas there's no necessarily, it's very unlikely that you'll be made redundant, and it's very unlikely that there'll be some kind of sort of departmental change in direction that means you're no longer required, or the working conditions, or not working, not working conditions, but the working direction of whatever it is you were being given let's say that if if the um if the pharma company was pumping a lot of money in a certain direction of research and you were involved in that then that could change at some point in the future so it is a very different world to working in the in the public sector and, and pensions will be one of the reasons why um yeah yeah people might um be considering making comparison but there's a lot to, there's a lot of other factors in there to consider also yeah, definitely, definitely. So let's just say you were a 35, 40-year-old doctor and you're interested in pursuing an element of fire uh, or maybe just FI, right? Who, who wouldn't want FI? Uh, I, I, I want FI. I don't yet want to retire early, but like I said, it's early days. Um, what would you sort of 
say to them to think about? Because as I said, lots of people say, oh, I'm, I'm fire, so I'm not going to do the NHS pension. I'm just going to do private pension. Um, and I'm interested to hear what you would sort of say to some 35, 40-year-old who's, who's, who wants to FI. So the whole FIRE movement uh, came off the back of a, of a book called Your Money or Your Life, which was written in 1992 by Vicky Robin and Joe Dominguez. And it, and it, it went very quiet and, and nobody picked it up. And then there was a sudden movement about six or seven years ago. And it was people who read the book that then developed the FIRE movement. And so through reading the sort of teachings of this book. And the simplest way to describe it is imagine people sort of tooling around in a camper van on the sort of west coast of america um and um you know living a fairly basic life without the sort of trappings that, that we all get get used to you know cinema sky sports gym membership um and creating a lifestyle that then wasn't dependent on the sort of rat race the nine to five i hate my job but it pays the mortgage you know that that sort of thing so it was breaking away from that so so i think the first thing to understand is that that those that the proponents of the fire movement who you know who, who are considering retiring at say 35 or 40 they made massive sacrifices and, and were saving around at 50 60 70 percent 80 percent uh in some cases to create a lifestyle very different from the one that you might live or we might both now live in any case um and so you're giving up a lot more to take away the requirement yeah to to, to run in that it work in that nine to five manner so that might mean that then you could work in a sort of what you know that one of them is called a barista far where you're not required to work in the in the nine to five right? but you can take jobs doesn't when they come up you know almost like working in a barista in a, in a coffee shop so you've got much more control and flexibility over that so it's it's in some sense making a sacrifice today to create um a um yeah a lifestyle in the future that isn't dependent on the nine to five if you're giving up if you're giving up um something and then still still retire still retiring at say 60 65 70 then it, i would say what's the point what's the point in giving up uh life and you know th things that you might enjoy today when you're still then covering off the, the yeah the fact that you're planning to retire at a later date so if you've got somebody who's leaving the nhs pension scheme one of the issues that they've got is that the um the, there's a strong possibility that the scheme then won't well, the NHS won't then pay into that private capital that you're that you're saving up, so you're losing out on the employer contributions, and then that's a that's a uh, an even uh, greater hurdle because the individual's got to to save more than 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 somebody who was using employer contributions in the private sector into a pension scheme, for example. Yeah, yeah, um, I think a lot of people as well get fixated on the normal retirement age in the NHS pension, which um, varies depending on which scheme you're in. So just quick, quickly, 95 scheme, it's 60 uh, normal retirement age, unless you've got a uh, mental health officer slash special class status when I believe you go 55. And then in the 2008, you've got 65. And then this is the crucial bit for me. And I think a lot of people are starting to realize this, but in the 2015 scheme, you're uh, NHS pension age is linked to state retirement age. So already for me, that's 68 and I don't see it going down. So have I got that right? Um, and I think then let's talk about the minimum retirement ages and what we can do to top that up if we wanted to top it, top it up. So so one of the issues the government had with changing the retirement date of the 
um, of the the earlier schemes was that it, it created a whole raft of legal problems. Whereas with the, the 2015 scheme, they've been quite clever and they've attached it to the state pension age. So you've only got to change the state pension age and then you've lifted millions of public sector workers' pensions up. When you model the 2015 scheme, the actual income that you get at any of those ages is in most cases higher than 50% of pay. So the scheme itself is is good. It doesn't pay uh, tax-free cash automatically like the earlier schemes did or the 1995 scheme did, but the actual income paid is is good. So on one sense, there's a big positive there in that you know that there's a significant sort of, uh, stream of money coming at, uh, at a certain point in time that's probably better than, than previous levels of income comparative to the level of pay, but you've just got to wait a very, very long time to get it. One of the solutions, that one of the ways you can address that is a thing called an ERBO, which is an early retirement uh, buyout uh, option, which um, enables you to lock in your retirement date at 65. So if they then increase the state pension age, you'd still have retirement of, of 65. And I've talked about this loads, but I've never seen anybody take it up or, or get a quote. And you you ring, you contact NHS pensions, and there's a form to fill in to express an interest, and then they send back based on your age, what it would cost you. So I would, I would encourage everyone to have a have a look at that because if they increase the state pension age at a later date, you would have locked in at 65. Yes, yeah, so just for, just to clarify, say like my retirement age is 68 uh, in the 2015 and I buy an Erbo for three years worth, then I will be able to retire at 65 uh, without an actually reduced pension because if you take Correct. your pension early, they actually reduce it basically reduce it by a certain percentage uh for every year you take it early have i got that right they have yeah so what the what the actuaries who sort of manage the scheme will have done in any final salary scheme is worked out to some degree how long they expect the individual to live for and then they count back if the individual's taking the pension five years early they they adjust the income to account for the fact that the person's had five years more income than somebody who retires at the normal date so it isn't necessarily there to just punish and discourage somebody. It's just to make it fair that that person's had five more, potentially, all being all, if they both died on the same at the same age, that person had five years more of income. And so it, uh, yeah, it's suggested to, to recognise that fact. So one of the things that we encourage clients to do is to look at how much money do you need to retire and at what age do you hit that figure? Because if you, if let's say, say you need £2,500 net and you reach that at 62 then that's what you need. And maybe that's the age at which, even with the actuarial reduction, that's the age to retire in the in the new scheme, potentially. Um, so yeah, I would encourage people to, to get familiar with the actuarial reduct- reductions and start to model what income they'll expect at a certain point of time. And then you've got a base figure. So you've got, you've got, you know that you've got, let's say, you know, let's say, let's, let's say that, that individual knows that they've got two and a half thousand pound net coming at 62. They've got 700 pounds a month coming net at 68 when their state pension starts and if they said well actually i'd like to retire at with a, with a net income of three thousand pounds a month when i'm 55 then you've got sort of blocks appearing of uh, of of years where you need uh, money to, to to support that that uh, that um, that level of income that then is alleviated when income streams come on in the future and that's how it looks in a cash flow model when you start to build that for clients. So then you've got a, a capital value of, in this example of 55 that might be several hundred thousand pounds to cover each of those periods where there was no income or guaranteed income. And then the income 
um, you know, comes online. And then you, you, you walk that back to the, to, to where they are now and say, well, you've got to say 300 pounds a month or whatever it may be to achieve that. But you compare when you do those same calculations, someone in the, in the private sector, the capital that that person needs at 55 is far, far greater, maybe two or three times greater than the individual with the two guaranteed incomes from the NHS pension and the state pension has. And that's the benefit of the NHS pension that you've got. A, a, a scheme that isn't perfect because you haven't got as much control over as and when you take it, but there are things in there that you know that are definite, and then you can build around that to resolve any any problems with flexibility with saving in between. I love it. Like that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, so I, I love that. So we talked about Erbo. Uh, do you want to talk quickly about um, on the theme of topping things up, um, buying additional years? So additional years. Um, uh, was uh, a way of um, increasing the number of years you had in the scheme by the time you, you retired. And the classic was somebody would leave med school at uh, 23 and therefore the maximum they could accrue by 60 would be 37 years. And you could buy up to, uh, in that example, another three years to give you 40 years at 60. And everybody thought that 40 years was the maximum you could have in that scheme. And it wasn't, it was 40 years at 60. So you could actually go in and tag on another five years. You just couldn't have more than 40. So when you added the added years, the added years couldn't amount to more than 40 years at 60. That was replaced in, I think, 2012. It's gone now, but it's been replaced by something called additional pension. And additional pension allows you to buy a guaranteed income. And we've had, I don't know, maybe five or six of these go through now. Um, whereby the individual can, for an amount of money, either a lump sum, which they get full tax relief on, or, for th- or through taking from their, their, their monthly pay, um, up to 6,500 of, of, uh, of income. And so that might suit somebody who had gaps in their employment. It might suit somebody who came to the NHS a bit later than others. Um, but I think anybody who, classic, left med school, joined the NHS, uh, and and I'm planning on retiring at around about 60, might be concerned about the lifetime allowance and hitting that level if they did buy additional income. But to give you an example, somebody who uh, bought, uh, they bought £6,500 and they were about 35 and it cost them something like £38,000 uh, as a lump sum, which they got full tax relief on. So you're, so they're putting some money aside to get an extra £6,500 and it worked well for them in this example because they were uh, they were working on about a four PA contract as a consultant, so they weren't accruing a massive amount of NHS pension. So when we sort of did the modelling for them, it it, uh, it was a pretty good deal uh, for them. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that uh, as ever, you just need to match your individual circumstances to your individual wants and desires, and then run the numbers because. Super interesting what you said about the modeling. Um, and now I've just modeled my pension numbers with my financial advisor. And yeah, you can model them uh, to work out exactly what you're going to get if things stay the same as they are at age 65, 68 and, and 70. Um, and so let's just say, for example, uh, you wanted to retire or I wanted to retire with a annual retirement income of 50 grand right arbitrary number and then i've modeled my numbers for the nhs pension pension scheme and i will get that number from the nhs pension scheme at age 65 okay so but 
I don't want to retire at 65. <laughs> Let's say I want to retire at 55. So 10 years before that, right? So what I essentially need to do is fill in that gap between 55 and 65 with something that isn't the NHS pension scheme. And you talked a bit about uh, a SIP, a uh, self-invested pension and the upsides and downsides of that. Um, I didn't use that option. And instead, I'm using something which I think is pretty underrated by doctors, which is a stocks and shares ISA. So criticize my strategy and give me some tips on uh, how to make a million pounds trading shares by Wednesday, please. No problem. Um, yeah, just follow follow this week's meme stock and, <laughs> and pile in. Um, uh, yeah, so, so in that example, in the modeling, you'd have two choices. One would be to take an actuarially reduced pension at 55 and then skim the top off your savings to meet the two in the middle or yep. take all the money from your savings um, and wait until your pension um, was not actuarial reduced or the actuarial reduction was less. And, 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 and the financial advisor would model the two strategies and there's pros and cons of, of each. So you'd, so you'd have to, to work out and you'd need less capital if you took the actuarially reduced pension early than you would. So, so it could affect the savings rate. Um, but yeah, I think if you were looking to save putting more money into a pension for somebody who could be reaching uh, lifetime allowance issues or somebody who could at some point have annual allowance issues, more money into pension might not be the right thing for them. And there's, the, the, the pensions are fantastic, but if you've got um, a, fi a final salary scheme already and it's likely to be um, of high value at a later date, then it could cause you further problems. If you If you had... If you had three hundred thousand pounds in a vehicle, and that vehicle could pay you can pay you uh, an income tax free and could grow tax free, uh, and you described it to somebody and you said it existed, then they'd think you'd made it up. Or they'd, the first thing they'd say is this some kind of offshore tax haven. Definitely, and it's not. It's just an ISA. So yep. ISA is a fantastic vehicle. So the first thing to say about an ISA is that it's it's no different from any other investment account. It's just got a wrapper around it, and so you can hold. Uh, anything you like within the ISA, it's just that the that, it, that the that the vehicle itself uh, doesn't pay any tax, um, and you can put twenty thousand a year in that. So that would be a fantastic uh, place to stop, or to look at a spouse's position. And let's say you are married to somebody, and they earn, let's say they earn ninety thousand pounds a year, and they're only putting twenty thousand pounds into a pension, just to, just to make the numbers simple then that person would have another £20,000 before they would uh, start to, or before within, the, of, of higher rate, uh, that person pays higher rate tax for a further £20,000 in which if you considered using your savings and transferring it across, they'd get full 40% tax relief on that as well. So it can be really tax efficient to use somebody else's um, position if they're a higher rate taxpayer as well. Um, and then you get all the benefits of... Um, of, uh, of 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 using a pension, um, and it's likely that they may not reach the lifetime allowance in the same way that a that a, that a doctor would, or somebody in the private sector with a, a final salary scheme. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I like that. It's an underrated uh, trick, that definitely. Uh, but just going back to what you said about the ISA, and I think it is underrated, right? An ISA, yeah, is tax free on the way in. Okay, the growth inside the ISA is tax free, 
and it's tax-free on the way out, okay? So like you said, if someone said that to you, that you'd think, hmm, like this is going to involve uh, the Bahamas or uh, Jersey or some other uh, offshore jurisdiction, but it's not. It's just an ISA. You've got 20,000 limit. Uh, you, your whole family, uh, adults, both adults, got 20,000 limit. Your kids can do an ISA. You can do a lifetime ISA. There's a stocks and shares ISA. There's cash ISAs. So ISAs are, I mean, I love ISAs because of the reasons I just outlined. Um, and I guess it's like the opposite of the pension for me because the pension is guaranteed, inflation-linked, income for life. Right? That is amazing, but it's not super flexible. Whereas ISA depends on the whims of the stock market and whichever meme stocks uh, people buy, which, by the way, I'm not buying any meme stocks. Um, this is kind of the opposite, but it, the two go together quite nicely in my view, but uh, I'll be interested in your view um, on it. And what sort of things do you, you know, what do you advise with the ISAs? So the question then is, what do you put in the ISA? And I think that there is an assumption along lots, lots of people that, that to be a really good investor, you've got to study the Financial Times, that you've got to be able to read um, a... Uh, a set of accounts, uh, and you've got to spend a lot of time picking it, buying and selling shares. And the only way to even stand a chance of being a good investor is 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 spending time doing those sorts of things. And even then, is likely forgot, that, that you forgot the red braces as well. Like you got red, to read red, <laughs> red braces; they're mandatory, right? But what what I see a lot of the time is people just chucking money. Uh, well, uh, you know, this, the, the airlines are probably going to do quite well next year. I, I'm going to go and buy some EasyJet. Now, markets price information in in a in a heartbeat. So, by the time you thought, you know, markets or do you know a particular field, and the big one in 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 um, with doctors is they, they love buying buying um, uh, pharma stock because they know somebody somewhere that's working on a particular breakthrough drug, and it's going to and, and the, the countless and they've always they always seem to have lost thirty six thousand pounds. So that, that's the number whenever I meet somebody. Oh yeah, I lost thirty six thousand pounds because I invested in this startup company on the outskirts of Oxford, and my friend went to etc. Um, and it's much simpler than that. All you need to do is look at a firm like Vanguard and their life strategy range, which do absolutely everything for you, and set your level of price tolerance. So they have a they have a, a range of funds, which you can access on most platforms, um, that set the amount of equities versus the the number of bonds. So they go up in in um, in, in ranks of uh, of twenty percent. So Vanguard twenty, forty, sixty, eighty, and then if you were going to go for the hundred percent fund, they've actually got a FTSE Global Cap Index Fund, which doesn't have the UK weighting that the hundred percent one does. So that's the one that I favour for that, um, and a very very broad. Thumb. The longer you hold the the the, uh, the fund for, the more likely you'll 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 get the expected rate of return, which isn't gonna, isn't going to be far off. Two percent for Vanguard twenty, four percent for Vanguard's forty percent, six percent for Vanguard six percent. Now you will get price movements throughout the year, but the longer you hold the fund, the um, the more likely is it, likely is that you'll get the expected rate of return for that particular asset allocation. So the more stocks you hold, the higher the expected rate of return, uh, and the longer you hold it for, the more likely is that you'll get the expected rate of return. So I've got clients who have been in similar investment structures, and even when you get a big, big sort of movement in market, if their expected rate of return for their risk portfolio is six percent, and they've been holding it for nine years, the annualized rate of return uh, where we track how close we are that doesn't move. The longer you hold it, the, the less sensitive it is to movements. 
So if you're looking for a high level of return and and, and, and um, anybody in their in, in their 30s who doesn't need that money uh, immediately and is happy to to to, to put it away and, and benefit from that higher expected return should be looking at those higher higher rates. And you might find in six months' time that it's negative, um, but it will come back um, and you will be um, the 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 risk return uh, dynamics um, in investments will hold true. Um, and uh, and that's been the case for a hundred year, hundred and twenty years of uh, of capital markets and data analysis. Uh, I love it. Like that was the best three minute summary of the mistakes that doctors make when investing and how not to make them that I've ever heard. I just want to drill down into some of that because some people will be nodding in agreement there. Some people's heads will have exploded because there was a lot of info in there. Okay, so let's just get this straight. That you know, good. So I've been investing for over 10 years now, um, I never read the Financial Times. I don't hold any, any individual uh, shares. I only hold funds. And the reason for that is what Tom said, that you've got to diversify your risk. Okay, If you're all in on one dodgy pharmatech bio company, yeah, you might hit the jackpot. But if you don't hit the jackpot, that's it. Your, your ship is wrecked on the rocks. And if you diversify, they say diversification is the only free lunch in investing. And, and what that means is that if you diversify and buy lots of different stocks, some of them will do well and some of them won't do well. But on average, as you just said, if if history repeats itself, uh, then you will do well over the long term. And it always makes me chuckle when you see any regulated advisor, because on any financial promotion, it says past performance does not indicate future returns. But actually, that's what everything's based on. Right. So good investing. You're diversified. You're minimizing your costs of investing. Um like Vanguard or something similar to that. It's great. Uh, like good investing is boring investing. I don't track my invest. I look at my investments once a year, maybe unless something really big happens because my plan has been set and I know what the plan is. I'm not going to change the plan unless something really radical happens. Um, and, and the other thing you said is basically that you need time, okay? Because the major driver of returns is compounding returns over time. Compound interest, eighth wonder of the world, according to Einstein. Uh, and that it needs time and it needs consistent returns. It doesn't need 40% one year return and then minus 50 the next year. It just needs a nice, gentle 6 to 10%, roughly, whatever, for 20 years and you are done. Um, have I got that right? And anything you want to add? Because what you said was so good. Uh, but for those people that are new to investing, the first question they get me when they find out I like investing, they're like, oh, should I buy Tesla? Should I buy this? Should I buy that? I'm like, whoa, whoa. Like if you're asking those kind of questions, they're the wrong kind of questions. You, you, and, you know. and, and, you, and, you might, and you might continue to do that, but just put it to one side in your mind that it is, it's, it's entertainment. So if you, if you want to spend £200 a month on Bet365 on a football match because it makes the football more exciting and entertaining, then that's what you're doing with your Tesla funds. And so, and so be honest with yourself and say, look, I get, I get a kick out of logging in and seeing it's up 7% and down 10% and following stuff on Twitter. But like, be honest with yourself. That's, that's, that's what it's for. Um, uh, and I've never seen it work. And I've never seen it work professionally. I've never seen it work. Um, I've seen clients... Get you sort of win big on a, on a particular stock and then lose it all on another, um, and that's not how to build build wealth um, because you want the same outcome uh, each and every time. And stick stick some numbers into one of those compound. I mean, they're they're, they're free. They just stick compounding interest into into Google and look at the difference between a three percent return and a four percent return and a seven percent return. And the the compounding effect of somebody building up thinking that their investment is safe, holding it in cash 
missing out on you know i mean i i mean i i, I meet people in their 50s um and they're, t- they're looking to retire early and they built up maybe four or five hundred thousand pounds in cash and i think you could have retired five years ago if you'd invested this money properly it's all sat in cash they've got no return on it the 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 you know cash is an appalling asset as, as an investment um what cash is good for is that it's rock solid and it's not going yet so have enough cash to withstand about two years of market declines and that's the thing that I, re- I remind people of. If you look at over a century of market of market data, if you hold a market weighted index fund, so this is this is you know forty four percent America, four percent UK, um, all of your money in stocks, but divided around about twenty five thousand stocks to give you a, a, a broad index of the entire global stock market. The longest you've ever had to wait to get your money back is around about twenty two months, and that was in two thousand eight in the Great Financial. Um, crash when uh, there was just no money in, in, in the system and, uh, and the Federal Reserve couldn't pump cash in like it did in in, in, uh, in February. So basically, the, the last port of call uh, being banks, were they, they were stuffed. And that's why the market took a bit longer to recover. 22 months. In the Great Depression, it was about nine months. In February, it was 16 weeks. We saw the massive flash crash in, in February. So if you say to yourself, well, Where's my ri- where's my real risk? I, I know I know there's a possibility that there could be a point in time where I might I might not get the value back uh, for for 24 months, and therefore as long as you've got enough cash flow to cover those 24 months, it's highly unlikely that you're ever going to lose money if you just sit tight and wait. And actually, one of the things with stocks is that we get this real time data, so we're sort of hypersensitive to the valuation. But if you had a number above your front door, which, which was the value of your house. That just flashed at you every time you walked in. You'd see much more price volatility in housing, and therefore there are. I'm sure there's been instances where people have been quite happy to not move and wait six months, etc., um, before that before the housing market recovered. So, by staying in cash, you're giving up on the yeah the massive benefits of of of, uh, of compounding wealth for the fear that you know in three months' time that you know I might suffer some pain of it of it going out. And it wasn't pleasant in February, um, and just because I was resilient and i've been through you know 2003 so i saw um various sort of wobbles uh, sort of credit issues um in south america um didn't work with within the uh, dot-com bubble crash but saw some credit issues um in argentina and then through to the um yeah the crash and i saw the market recovery so even though i was completely immune to it and i studied economics at university so i, I you know I, i've I, I understand the history of, of stock markets and even I gulped when I looked at my pension, but then saw it roll back. Um, uh, and I always remind myself of that point. You've only had to wait 22 months historically to get a full return on your on your money. I love it. Uh, I love it. I, I can literally talk about this all day. Uh, I think it's super interesting investor behavior in a crash uh, because I started investing in late 2009, 2010, right, which retrospectively was amazing. I've ridden the largest, um, probably the well, one of the longest um, bull markets that we've had, um, not not by any genius, just by getting in the market and realizing that time was the major benefit. But um, investor behavior in a crash is, is fascinating to me, uh, and we could talk about that all day. Um, but if you just look at the history, um, generally it comes back and, you know, you just got to stay the course. And it's easy to stay the course if you've got a nice plan, you know why you've got that plan. Uh, so get a plan. And the point about cash, I think that is just a major thing. Um, you know, cash is because of inflation, 
cash is trash um in my opinion anyway not recommendational advice from tom because i know he's regulated uh, <laughs> but uh yeah my kids do not have a piggy bank but they do have a junior stocks and shares isa right because why would they hold cash like you know um, oh yeah i mean I, I got to 16 and my parents had sort of saved up so this so we're talking sort of 1995 somewhere around then uh and my parents had saved up uh 500 pounds in cash for me and um, I've even sort of looked at sort of real-time adjustments as to what that is now. And I've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I haven't saved a lot of money for them. They've just benefited from the stock market, who've flown past what I had at 15, 16, yeah. because their, 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 their birthday money is compounding away um, at 8 9 10%. Yeah. Um, my five-year-old uh, has got a two-fund portfolio, right, because life was hectic when he was born. I didn't really have time to think of a plan. So he's 80% S&P tracker, 20% small cap emerging markets. And in the last five years, uh, he's done, I think he's on 22% return. Um so, and that's Brilliant. not because he's an, that's not because he's an investing genius. Um, it, when he was born, he said, "Actually, get heavy on the S and P, Dad," because I I think but Trump's going to be going to be good for America. That was his first I word. He did, yeah. yeah. Those, uh, those cyclical growth stocks in in US big tech are going to going to carry me home, Dad. Exactly what he said. That was his first words. Um, but if he had had that sat in uh, in his piggy bank, um, you know, it would have been totally wasted and be worth less now, possibly, than it was then. So, yeah, I could talk about this all day. Maybe we should do another podcast because I love talking to, uh, to you about this. But um, to sum up today, um, give me some parting words of wisdom for people who are looking to fire or looking to retire early and thinking is the NHS pension part of that plan or not? I think that um, I, I, I would, I'd struggle to, to make a case for somebody not interweaving an NHS pension and a state pension because, because a big part of people in the private sector is weaving in the state pension as part of their overall financial planning. And it takes a lot of pressure off their capital requirements because there is that state pension coming on at some point and it's only to a great degree with the nhs pension but if you want to create flexibility then the way to do that is to is to save how much flexibility you want you've got to make a decision between the balance between what you're willing to give up today to create uh, a um uh, yeah a, a future uh, lifestyle for yourself uh, and there's a lot to, to be said in finding your personal balance between the two there's absolutely no point in in, in, in you know in, in living uh, a, you know, fairly Puritan life um, for the, for for most of your working life, um, and that well, I think, and then and then um, getting to a point where, um, uh, yeah, you've got enough money enough money saved, but uh, at what expense? Because you do see, you, know, you do see, you know, life takes lots of twists and turns and stuff. So you've always got to find that balance between living for today and then sort of planning for tomorrow and whatever that looks like for you. Um, yeah, and for some people, for for a range of reasons, not just because of of you know the changes in the, in the pandemic, but maybe the NHS isn't for them and the solutions there. But actually, when people do look at um, life in the NHS compared to the private sector, there's much more to consider than just the pension position and, and pros and cons of of uh, of both. I love it. Awesome summary. I really enjoyed talking to you today. I think that point about balance is absolutely key. And going back to what you said when you said about fire movement, you know, basically people living in, in a van saving, you know, uh, 60, 70 percent of their income to retire early. Um, the great thing about being a doctor is that you don't need to do that 
okay? You don't have to be that radical because you are in a higher paid job. And if you do combine a high income with a high savings rate and a sensible investment strategy, you are going to build significant wealth, which is going to give you choices. And you don't need to live in a van or eat uh, value-baked beans, but you do need to do something about it because it's not going to happen magically on its own anymore. Um, thank you and so may, much. And, and maybe on that point, you know, like life at the pace you're living at, you know, working now, you know, it's, it's tough when you've got a young family in your 30s and 40s, but maybe start to think about, well, I'll drop, I'll drop a couple of PAs or I'll drop some sessions or um, I'll go part-time from 50 and actually, you know, um, and then I'll drop a bit more maybe at 60, then maybe sort of working that through means that actually, and, and if you find that balance between, I mean, there's a lot of research that the sort of cliff edge of retiring, if you can just stop, stop, you know, go from a really incredibly high-pressured job and stop at 60, that's not particularly good for you either. So maybe the idea of what what would I be prepared to do between 60 and 68 that keeps me, keeps me on tick over, it's the stuff I love about the job, I'm going to make sure that that's what I'm doing and I'm, I'm in a financial position that I can pick and choose what it is I like about work and then all the research says that those people are the ones that go into retirement and do much better, they have better social groups, they're more intellectually stimulated, etc. than those that actually got out. I'm not sure the sort of the fire lifestyle is necessarily good for um, good for people if they sort of step off that uh, sort of cliff face and, and stop completely anyway. Totally agree. It's about balance. Um, I always like to end the podcast on a really difficult question. So you have a private pension. Uh, if you could swap that private pension for my NHS pension, would you swap it? Uh, so, uh, and why? I think, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I, I, I can completely understand the concerns of anybody. I wouldn't like to be boxed into a position where I, I had no control over my retirement date. So I wouldn't want to swap one for one. Um, I like my position and I've got total control, but it would be like if I could have more guaranteed certainties over it. So you're, if you're pressing me for an answer and you said you've got to swap your 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 current strategy for a final salary pension only, then I think I'd, I'd, I'd stick with my my current position. But that's because it's what I know, and you know, and I and, I, and, and I've modelled around that, and I've obviously built a sort of dream financial future for myself, as you would expect a financial planner. Um, so I like what I've got. But then, if I if I was in your position, it wouldn't it wouldn't take me long to work out a way to resolve. And actually, they're all they're all positives. They're all positive. You know, guaranteed income at a certain point in time much lower saving rate than me, um, much more certainty. Uh, yeah, I, I, could, I could solve all those problems and correct the same, the same outcome. Yeah. So I'd, I'd have both. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've given a great answer without answering my question. I love it. Um, <laughs> so good to catch up with you, Tom. Thank you so much for your time today. If people are liking what they're hearing, what is the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, you can contact me at thomas.skinner at barnabycecil.com. Thank you. Uh, drop me a line. And, and I'm always happy to have 15 minutes with anybody on any subject at any time. So if you sort of don't want us to engage with the financial planner, but you've just got one particular question that you think, I, I can't get through to any pension to get an answer on this, then, um, yeah, just pick up the phone and give me a call. I've really... I've forgotten to mention the most important thing, which is at the top of my list. I don't know if we should mention it now. This is a massive reward for those that have listened to us ramble on 47 minutes because I love this scheme that you're doing, your pro bono thing, which is open to... Do you want to talk about that now or...? Yes, thank you. So so we have... Um, we, we we thought about when we set the company up, we decided you know various things we wanted to do and, and one was should we give money to charity? 
And we thought, well, actually, it's, it's more valuable if we apportion 10% of our time a year to help anybody with financial planning leads um, who um, maybe not might have been priced out of financial planning, but might have a fairly complex position. So anybody who thinks that that might apply to them, any sort of key workers or maybe anybody working with the arts, we keep 10% of our of our fee based time available each uh, each year for um, you know paramedics, nurses, etc. Who want um, financial planning, and we treat them exactly the same as all of our clients. Um, and um, and so we can't offer it to to everybody, but um, um, it's, there's certainly a lot of capacity there for us to um, to take uh, to take that on. And um, uh, yeah, we'd be very happy to uh, to talk to people who might be interested in that service. I absolutely love it. So just to clarify, if you're a key worker on a lower income and you want to get some financial expertise or just a bit of advice for free, uh, you've got a certain number of slots remaining this year and that's possible. If if that is that right? Exactly that. Yep. Love it. So just give you an email about that, right? Yep. Fantastic. Well, yeah, uh, all those that listen to the end definitely got a bit of a bonus there. And if uh, if you're not one of those people that were qualified, but you know someone that is, please share it with them because um, key yeah. workers have been, you know, working really hard during this pandemic. And, uh, you know, some, for some people, the cost of financial advice is a barrier. I would suggest doctors do not fulfill that criteria. Uh, but uh, it's amazing you're doing that. And thanks so much for doing it, Tom. Uh, I really look forward to catching up with you again on the next podcast. Thanks for having me on. More than welcome. Take care. Take care. Bye.